Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Sir Anthony Selden. Sir Anthony is the author of and or editor of well over 40 books, and today we are discussing one of his latest book, Johnson at Number 10, The Inside Story, published by Atlantic Books. Welcome, Sir Anthony. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How are you? <laughs> Fine, thank you. Sir Anthony, why did you write this book? Uh, <laughs> very good question. I always ask myself that question when I'm writing it and um, think, why on earth am I doing this to myself? And then when it comes out, I feel that moment of uh, pleasure. I suppose it, it is, everything is a challenge, Charles, anybody who's uh, written a book. Um, I mean, it's enough of a challenge uh, reading a book, uh, but writing a book is perhaps even harder. Um, and one does it because it's a challenge, because it's interesting, because Boris Johnson, in this case, uh, this is the seventh book I've written on a consecutive British Prime Minister in a series called Act 10. Um, And uh, so this is Johnson Act 10. And it is um, a story about the most uh, disreputable, uh, Trump-like Prime Minister that Britain's seen in in, uh, 200 years. Why do you compare him to Lloyd George? Uh, because Lloyd George, in many ways, who was prime minister from 1916 to 1922, uh, when Woodrow Wilson was uh, uh, president um, in the most important uh, time of, of Lloyd George's premiership, um, because um, he uh, they were similar, that they were similar. Um, in the way that they uh, conducted their lives. They were both chancers. They were both uh, free and easy with money, uh, with women. They both had mistresses. Um, they both had uh, uh, didn't care about moral questions. They were high-risk people. They were highly egocentric. Uh, they were both very gifted orators, Lloyd George uh, more so, uh, both very smart people, both not really totally committed to their own parties, uh, both were in politics to get things done, they both wanted to build things. Um, I mean, there, there were so many similarities between them, uh, and that's why, but but as the book shows, uh, whereas Lloyd George achieved uh, remarkable things, including uh, the taking Britain through the last 23 months of the First World War and overseeing the peace treaty along with Georges Clemenceau of France and Woodrow Wilson, uh, and uh, then rebuilding Britain's position in the post-First World War world, taking Britain through the epidemic of flu, Spanish flu that killed 50 million, roughly, 
uh, internationally, setting up Ireland uh, as an independent country. I mean, he was he he did so many things, whereas Boris Johnson was essentially frivolous, um, and he wasn't capable uh, of understanding how you affect change in politics. Um, he wasn't serious. He didn't do the work. He didn't know who to appoint to the key positions. Uh, he didn't uh, know how to drive policy through a system. So uh, you know, they, they, they were different. Uh, they were similar in character uh, and in uh, many of their qualities, but different in their uh, seriousness and in their capability to govern and lead. What was Boris Johnson's background? So uh, Boris Johnson uh, went famously to Eton, uh, one of 20 prime ministers out of 57, to go to just one school. I think I'm right in saying that Phillips Andover uh, is um, the closest uh, U.S. equivalent that had Bush Jr. and Bush Sr., um, uh, but um, but you know, not 20 um, presidents. And uh, you know, that upper-class background uh, uh, and charmed life that he had, moneyed, uh, no need to worry where the next meal was coming from. He then went to Oxford uh, and again led a charmed, irresponsible life of uh, excess, a lot of drinking, a lot of good time, a lot of playing around, a lot of women, a lot of parties. He, um, so he uh, married and uh, then uh, that marriage went wrong. There were other women. He married again to an extraordinary woman called Marina Wheeler, uh, who was a very serious woman, a lawyer, and they had children. And then he left her just before he became prime minister for a woman, a very intelligent uh, person called Carrie Simmons, who was half his age. So um, a member of the British upper middle classes, um, a lot of uh, moneyed friends, uh, although he doesn't really do friends. Um, he has a lot of people he's friendly with, a lot of admirers, a lot of people who uh, like like him, uh, but not really uh, many close friends, interestingly. Why did David Cameron run him as the Conservative Party candidate for the mayor of London? To keep him quiet. Um, and they knew he was a nuisance, they knew he was ruthless. Uh, that's David Cameron and his right-hand man, George Osborne, the British finance minister, Chancellor of Exchequer, and uh, they thought it would keep him quiet. Uh, they knew that he had uh, a very unusual in, in British politics, which is star quality and ability to to reach out beyond Parliament, beyond London, across the whole nation. And neither David Cameron nor George Osborne himself had that. And they thought that they would, uh, by giving him this, it'd get him out of Parliament. 
Uh, it would stop him, therefore, challenging them uh, as prime minister, because only a parliamentarian can do that. And if you are a mayor of a city, you can't do that. Um, and uh, that was why. Uh, and for eight years, uh, from 2008 to 2016, he did two terms, four terms each. Uh, sorry, four years each. Um, he was out of the way, but then when it finished in 2016, he came back on the stage with a vengeance. Would you say he was a successful mayor of London? Yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, it's it's difficult to know who to compare it with, like it is mayor of uh, New York or Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, what are the criteria for success? But London flourished under him, and a particular high point for him uh, which he took enormous pride in, was the Olympics in 2012 held in London. Why did he support Brexit, and how important to the referendum results was his support? Answer one, uh, because he saw supporting Brexit as the most likely strategy for him uh, that he could uh, take if he was wanting to become Prime Minister, if he had just gone along and supported uh, remaining in the EU, which was the line of uh, David Cameron and George Osborne, then he would play no significant part. But if he uh, stood up and said, I support Brexit, uh, then he would be the national leader. He thought that the Brexit side would lose, but that it would position him very well uh, as the winner of Brexit that was very popular with conservative voters and with many parliamentarians, he thought it would position him very well for the coming leadership contest. He didn't expect the win. So uh, it wasn't a doctrinaire, ideological policy point of view. He, like most people, saw uh, the flaws in the EU. Uh, he also saw the advantages, which he had milked considerably when he'd been mayor of London those eight years. Uh, he saw thus the good and the bad about the EU, um, and uh, but it was a political calculation. Uh, second question, what impact did it have? It had a massive impact. Now, look, the result was very close. It was 48.1 to 51.9%, and there was no figure uh, in Britain who had the ability to uh, reach uh, uh, across the country and, uh, and voters in the way that he did. And uh, so uh, he helped sway it. Now, would it have happened without him? Uh, I think that it is highly likely that his leadership, because uh, that side, the anti-EU uh, side, the Brexit leave side lacked heavyweight figures. Uh, it had populist figures of great popular renown like Nigel Farage and others on that side, but they tended to be mavericks. Uh, they didn't have anybody as credible as someone who'd been mayor of London for uh, eight years and a, a generally well-regarded mayor of London for that long. And it had enormous influence. His ability to reach out in parts of the country 
uh, to persuade, to repeat uh, the arguments of uh, the Brexiteers about how this would repatriate uh, lots of money uh, that was going off to Brussels and the EU and how it would protect the borders from uh, these foreigners who are wanting to come to this country and how it would restore national sovereignty and pride in Britain. I mean, he was a, an outstanding articulator uh, of that uh, of that set of, uh, of arguments. Uh, now, whether uh, they were true or not is a separate matter, but he was very significant in articulating them. How good or bad was his tenure at the Foreign Office under Theresa May? So, uh, Theresa May, again, to shut him up uh, and get him out of the way, appointed him Foreign Secretary, uh, which Prime Ministers often do to people they want to uh, get out of the way because they spend a lot of time abroad and uh, and... Uh, dealing with foreign issues, not domestic issues. So Theresa May pointed him for uh, two years. I mean, he, as always, as throughout his life, he has he shows great promise. Uh, he says the right things. Uh, he's a historian. He had a global view about the position of China, uh, the position of the United States, the declining position of the United States, an understanding of the risks. Uh, of uh, Donald Trump, while also recognizing the allure and benefit to him of being associated himself with him. Uh, he he saw the big picture. He could have been a uh, considerable, well, he could have been a very good foreign secretary, but a number of factors intervened. One, he didn't do the work. Uh, he didn't read the brief. He didn't uh, take meeting seriously. His first trip to uh, America was in, embarrassing and the uh, people he met um, complained to the British Embassy about why he couldn't be serious and why he was trying to make jokes uh, all the time. He, he makes jokes because if you don't read uh, the papers, if you don't take the time to master the arguments, you, you try and, and uh, be frivolous. Uh, that was number one. Number two, his attention was always on, uh, despite the desire to get him away from focusing on domestic politics, his eye was always on the big prize of um, uh, becoming prime minister. So he he never gave it the quality time. He also made a series of gaffes um, uh, as over uh, Iran, uh, just a series of, of gauche, uh, foolish comments, uh, which he uh, either thought were, were, were going to be funny or uh, uh, would lighten the atmosphere. I mean, he's a well-meaning person. He doesn't do things to be deliberately uh, nasty. I mean, he's very egocentric, but so uh, uh, all politicians to, to differing degrees. But it was just a series of gaffes that, that undermined his credibility, and he had inconsistencies with uh, his own beliefs and uh, didn't stand up uh, for uh, causes, didn't make convincing speeches. So I think one would say that he was second race at best as foreign secretary, but it didn't seem to make any difference. Um, and uh, he'd been foreign secretary, and uh, that itself is such a senior position 
government, um, uh, the fact of him being it rather than his performance in the job is what mattered more. Why was he elected Conservative Party leader in the summer of 2019? Well, very simply because uh, for three years after David Cameron, Theresa May, a very good, hardworking woman, had been Prime Minister 2016 to 19, but not a strategist, not a, 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 a strong communicator. And uh, the vote, the referendum, 23rd June 2016, to go for uh, Brexit uh, needed passage of legislation, uh, needed a, a, a deal uh, with the EU, and Theresa May hadn't procured that. And uh, she'd then had a disastrous call to general election 2017 to get a stronger uh, majority. You can do that in Britain. And... Uh, uh, call an election at your moment of your choosing, within reason, um, and it fired. She had an even smaller majority, uh, if a majority at all, um, and it was just a disaster. And the party was losing confidence, and they turned to Boris Johnson, knowing that he was shallow, um, knowing that he uh, led a colourful private life, knowing. Uh, that he wasn't a good administrator, but uh, they called upon him to get the job of getting Brexit done, to bang it through, bash it through Parliament and the EU, and secondly, to win the general election. And he did both of it. Why was he able to win such a commanding majority in the election of December three 2019? Reasons. Uh, three reasons. Uh, first, uh, there was widespread desire in the country after three years of inertia under Theresa May on Brexit that it sucked the energy out of every other, almost every other political issue, uh, the Brexit deal. Uh, there was a widespread desire from Remainers as well as Brexiteers just to get the uh, bloody thing over and done with. And uh, he promised to offer to do that. Secondly, uh, because um, uh, Labour principal opposition party had a uh, leader who was far to the left, Jeremy Corbyn, and he alienated many uh, Labour supporters, particularly those in the middle and the right of the Labour Party. And he also was associated with anti-Semitism, which, while maybe attractive to some voters, was very unattractive to uh, to many others, many more others, and he uh, refused to be convincing that in his position that he wasn't an anti-Semite. That was very much tied up with his views about the position of Israel. Uh, and the third reason was Boris Johnson himself, but um, uh, and, and, and the policy platform he had. But uh, in order of importance in getting, getting that historic 80 seat majority for the Conservatives in December 2019, uh, the, 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 the polls would suggest the most important factor was getting Brexit done, number one, two, um, the character of Jeremy Corbyn uh, and, and the fear that if Labour were elected, you'd have a, a, a very radical left-wing, very woke um, uh, government, uh, and three... Uh, Boris Johnson himself. So 
himself probably the third most important factor. Who was Dominic Cummings and why was he such a pivotal figure in your narrative? Two reasons. Um, Dominic Cummings was one of the political class in Britain called SPADS, which stands for SD SPAD, uh, Special and AD Advisor, uh, Special Advisors. Uh, class that have risen very significantly in Britain in the last uh, uh, 45 years. And uh, he was a very unusual spad because he was quite extraordinarily intelligent and determined and uh, a uh, absolutely unquashable belief in his own uh, role and importance. And he... Uh, uh, so, it's, it's, so you have one, but... Uh, you have this in extraordinarily, quite extraordinarily intelligent, single-minded, determined, uh, uh, ruthless figure. Uh, but that would have been nothing were it not for the coincidence of him uh, being around at the same time as you have an unusually inept prime minister uh, who doesn't know his own mind, who is very susceptible, therefore, to being guided and led by somebody particularly on how to get Brexit done, uh, on which Boris Johnson himself didn't have a clue, uh, and this person, Dominic Cummings, was available. So if you put one and one together, uh, you make 64, the 64 being the most powerful aid to a prime minister in the history of the prime minister's office, going back to 1721, there's never been a more dominant uh, aid. I mean, there'd be lots of uh, uh, significant uh, figures. Uh, Martha Thatcher had somebody called Charles Pole. Tony Blair had somebody, his actually brother, uh, called Jonathan Powell. Different pronunciation, same name. They were brothers. Um, and so you have, you know, every prime minister, like if the president, for goodness sake, has very dominant um, uh, aides, but none as dominant. Um, because <laughs> well, there have been some single-minded, bloody-minded, uh, powerful, uh, intelligent, uh, ruthless as Cummings, but that's never matched up or mapped onto such a totally inept prime minister who was willing to cede power. And indeed, uh, for the uh, 15 months when they overlapped, Cummings was by far the more powerful figure than Johnson. And indeed, when Cummings left, uh, Johnson premiership rather fell apart because it needed somebody uh, like that um, who, would, uh, who would provide the firepower. Without it, it was very hollow. Why did Johnson finally oust Cummings from number 10? Because he was an embarrassment. So after the general election of 2019, as discussed, uh, in which Cummings was a very significant factor, less in the tactical um, decisions about how to fight it than in getting the strategy of, uh, uh, of getting Brexit done. Uh, once uh, Johnson had got his 80-seat majority, and that's really significant as a size of majority. It allows the prime minister to do anything at all uh, because there's no, as long as you can hold your own party together, 
the opposition parties, even if they all joined together, would never be able to outvote you in Parliament. So it was incredibly uh, strong. Uh, and he, he then came progressively to realise, as did his wife, as discussed, Carrie Simmons, by now Carrie, or shortly to be Carrie Johnson, they got married. Um, and uh, Carrie, uh, who had been a Dominic Cummings fan, uh, came to resent the fact that he was humiliating her husband, uh, dominating him, snide, sneering at him. And indeed, Dominic Cummings had no time for Boris Johnson. He thought he was little better than a joke, a shopping trolley, he de described him in a supermarket aisle, going around without a wheel, lurching from side to side, no consistency. And it just became more and more embarrassing, more and more evident, not least during COVID, that uh, uh, Cummings was calling the shots and was embarrassing to Johnson. And Johnson, having got that 80-seat majority, realized he no longer needed Cummings, that he, or thought he no longer needed Cummings, and wanted to be his own prime minister with his own policies, and pursue policies such as leveling up, uh, which is to spread uh, national uh, wealth more evenly across the very uh, ill, um, uh, inegalitarian, unequal Britain. Uh, Britain is very, very heavily dominated by the southeast, uh, with London in it, um, and the rest of the country is much less well off. And Boris Johnson had this admirable policy of levelling up, which, which uh, um, Cummings never believed in. Uh, and uh, Cummings had his own policies, particularly around science and research and investment, which were uh, important uh, also. And uh, so, so they just fell out. It became progressively embarrassing by the summer of 2020. Uh, and uh, it was hard. It was hard for both of them, actually, to, uh, to have that break because they both were symbiotic. Uh, Cummings needed... Johnson has power. He's been a shadow of uh, who he was when he was in Downing Street since he left. And Johnson needed Cummings, uh, but he needed a Cummings who was loyal to him and his causes, not to his own. How do you rate in retrospect Johnson's performance in dealing with COVID-19? Well, mixed. Uh, he never was on top of it, but never had a consistent picture. Uh, most prime ministers have a big crisis on their watch. So Gordon Brown, uh, president, prime minister, when Obama was first president, they had the global financial crisis. Uh, that was his crisis on his watch. Uh, and he was fortunate in that that was his area of expertise. He had been Britain's chancellor of the exchequer overseeing finance. He was a good economist, had a good financial brain, and Gordon Brown, uh, Gordon Brown's premiership was in a way rescued his reputation by how well he did on his particular crisis. In contrast, Boris Johnson had no great acumen at all for dealing with uh, COVID-19. He, uh, it wasn't his skill set. He was naturally a libertarian, uh, naturally resentful of the state in as far as he dis, you know, had disliked the EU, what he disliked about it was its interfering tentacles of the state and the 
liberty of private and corporate life to for individuals to make their own decisions. And equally, he felt instinctively uh, repulsed by the idea of uh, lockdowns and uh, controls and ordering people's lives. And yet the scientists on who he had to rely and his senior ministers, including Dominic Cummings themselves, were very led by the science. So he didn't, he wasn't a, a prime minister who who understood advice uh, or understood what scientists or indeed economists had to offer. And um, but at his best, he took advice on on matters like um, the vaccine rollout. Um, brought in some very good people on advice. Uh, I think he did well communicating with the nation. He he was much more convincing, uh, I think, than many of his uh, predecessors and successors as prime minister would have been with the daily announcements uh, in from number 10 Downing Street about where the pandemic was. So I think he played an important role uh, in that. So mixed. What was Johnson's relations with Whitehall? Well, he uh, never understood uh, bureaucracy. Uh, he was successful as uh, mayor of London. In the start, he was successful. It was because he trusted people. He had a team of people overseeing uh, business relations, uh, the economy, housing, transport, the Olympics, uh, new building and infrastructure projects. He had a team who oversaw things, who he listened to their advice. But uh, in Downing Street, uh, he didn't. He had an instinctive dislike or distrust. I mentioned earlier the distrust he has of government had extended to civil servants. He found them patronizing. They probably were patronizing. They probably did think that uh, who is who on earth is this person who's not doing their work, uh, doing their work and doing the job properly and showing uh, the, the dignity and decorum and respect that a national leader needs to show. Uh, so relationships were, were not good. Uh, he got rid of his top uh, Whitehall civil servant official called Mark Fedwell on the advice of Dominic Cummings and replaced him by somebody who he thought would be much more biddable. Um, uh, he allowed Cummings, who had a uh, extraordinary contempt for the civil service, uh, he allowed Cummings to dismiss a whole series, a whole uh, series of, uh, uh, of top uh, civil servants in a cull, the like of which uh, the country hasn't seen before. I mean, Margaret Thatcher got rid of uh, a few, but nothing on this scale. So um, not a good relationship. And, and it came back to, to bite him because uh, you, need, you, you need to have the confidence and the trust of the civil servants. Otherwise, you can't do the job. I mean, you know, no captain can play, uh, uh, can play unless you've got players on the field. And uh, uh, you've got players on the field who are ministers and you've got players on the field who are civil servants, but you have only about 100 ministers and you have about 6,000 top civil servants, officials, and you, you just have to be able to work with them and, and be able to 
give them clear instructions. He found that very difficult. How would you rate Johnson's foreign policy? Uh, foreign policy uh, was uh, inconsistent. Uh, he uh, he realized uh, that uh, Trump was a liability, uh, and he also thought in private that Trump was sick. Um, I mean, he had just a contempt for him, uh, but he was necessary. Uh, he wasn't at all sorry in November 2020 that Biden won, but he was worried equally about Biden with his views about his views about Ireland. So he prepared very carefully for his first phone call with uh, Biden to make certain that uh, Biden understood that the family had deep roots, Biden family in England, also not just Ireland. Uh, and he worked reasonably well um, uh, with Biden. Difficult to imagine that the Biden administration would have had much respect for Johnson, uh, personally, not least with Brexit, but uh, uh, for him uh, as a leader uh, and as a serious figure. I mentioned earlier um, the lack of respect that, uh, or the surprise that officials had uh, when uh, Johnson's foreign secretary, that, that he wasn't doing his, his work properly in, in meetings and appeared to treat the whole thing like a joke. So um, uh, not very good, not very impressive in, with U.S. relations, uh, nor leading in the Commonwealth, uh, nor finding a role for Britain. He promised that once away from the perfidious European Union, the country Britain would at last rise again to its natural position as one of the great nations on earth. He uh, gave a speech in Greenwich at the start of 2020 uh, about how Britain would be effectively reborn out outside the shackles of the EU. Uh, but he did little uh, to make it a reality. He didn't understand that making a speech with grand subjects is a totally different proposition from making something happen. Uh, he thought almost as if he makes a speech, that's enough, and his job is done, and other people, he wasn't quite certain who would actually go on and make the reality happen. And on Brexit, he promised that there'd be a great Brexit dividend, but he never worked to get that great Brexit dividend. And in consequence, uh, it's difficult for even the most ardent Brexiteer to say that on the economic side, I mean, there are some very significant sovereignty benefits, maybe, uh, but on the economic side, it's difficult to show that uh, Brexit so far, so far, has been advantageous for Britain, uh, not least with the trade deals, including a trade deal with the US, which uh, didn't happen, or if it did happen, uh, weren't significant. So um, the one bright spark, uh, and, and again on just uh, on climate change, the big conference COP26 in Glasgow. Um, had he taken it more seriously? Had he? Yeah, I know mean, this is a theme, but it is important. Had he done his work uh, properly? Uh, had he not been distracted by domestic crises, often of his own making, because he didn't, he wasn't emphatic and he didn't close things down properly. Um, had he not been distracted, he could have shown the world much more leadership 
uh, in COP26, given that it was hosted within uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, but then, of course, the bright spot is Ukraine, and he clearly showed a lot of courage and, uh, uh, and leadership uh, in uh, Ukraine in the early weeks, uh, was ahead of other EU leaders, although, uh, and he built a, a very important and I think undeniable uh, close personal relationship of mutual admiration with Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader. Um, so I think you know, that's the bright spot. Uh, but of course, in Britain, we tend to exaggerate what Britain did to stand up to Ukraine. It looks different if you're viewing it from Berlin or from Washington uh, or from Paris. Um, so, um, I, you know, he, he uh, foreign policy was uh, perhaps you'll give him four out of ten. Uh, as a prime minister, but you know, he could so easily have done so much better um, uh, in foreign policy. What finally led to Johnson's downfall, and can we say that he was, in the original Greek sense, a tragic figure? He was brought down because a prime minister in the British system of government doesn't have the job um, uh, until um, they're timed out by the uh, electoral cycle. They have the job only in, in as far as they retain the support of Parliament. Um, and in particular, the most senior parliamentarians' cabinet. And a series of crises, all beginning with P, Partygate, Pincher, and Patterson, um, undermined the confidence that the MPs, his own Conservative MPs, had in him because he didn't appear to be offering principled or consistent leadership. And by early uh, 2022, they had lost confidence in him. And it was then a question of, um, you don't want to dump a leader at uh, least of all after they've won a general election, unless you are very clear uh, that there's going to be somebody better who's more likely to win a general election. And that was difficult because uh, the greatest skill that Johnson is associated with is the ability to win elections. Um, and um, so it was very traumatic and difficult for the party. On the one hand, they had a, uh, a, a figure who was becoming almost a laughing stock a joke um, uh, across the country and indeed abroad, um, uh, who clearly was not in control of events. Um, on the other hand, if you dump somebody who the country still has a lot of positive feeling about, particularly voters, um, you, you might be uh, damaging your own uh, side, as the saying goes, to cut, you cut off your nose to spite your face. And uh, was there any guarantee there'd be anyone better? And then significant then is that uh, first one, then two candidates, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, came forward, both very credible figures at the time. Liz Truss, who won it, 
was the one deemed more likely to lead the party successfully charismatic. Uh, more than a touch of Margaret Thatcher about her, which was she very deliberately milked the references, photographic ref- references, uh, cultural references to Margaret Thatcher, that she was in some ways the daughter of Thatcher, uh, and the Scottish party still deeply loves Margaret Thatcher, uh, and uh, she won. So you had then the disillusionment, uh, the, the, the loss of credibility, loss of confidence, loss of trust from the uh, MPs and uh, the ministers uh, in government, and you had a rival waiting in the wings. And uh, from that point, it was just a question of time. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Sir Anthony, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel, New Books Network. Thank you, Sir Anthony, very much. Uh, Charles, very nice to be asked such uh, penetrating, thoughtful questions, which made me really think. Um, And uh, apologies for the occasional uh, car going past uh, but that does at least show it's a live broadcast, live <laughs> yes. podcast. That is correct, Sir Anthony. Again, thank you very, very much for being so kind and allow me to interview you. My thanks.